Carol Lee, the chair and president of Access Circles. Thank you. A board member of Aspen Brain Institute. Thank you, Glenda. Good morning. I am the founder of uh, Access Circles, which is a network that brings together women to transform their health. We partner with leading institutions who bring us wisdom, knowledge, beyond our wildest dreams. And one of them is Brigham Health and Harvard University, and I'm especially honored uh, to introduce Chuck Chisler. Chuck and I had the pleasure of meeting last year uh, at Aspen Brain um, at, uh, Health Fest, and then we had the pleasure of having dinner so I could learn how many hours of sleep I need. But like all of you, I'm attached to my iPhone. This is a problem, you can't use your iPhone about two hours before, and lots of other good tips that Chuck gave us. Uh, but what he really uh, told us, which Sharon, Glenda, and myself, which was, I thought, the most startling, was that he had been talking to the wrong people all this time. He had been talking to men who didn't listen to him. <laughs> the women now, he said, are really listening and taking his advice. So Chuck, I know everyone wants to hear it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Great to see you again. <clears throat> and thank you for the invitation here to all the organizers. Uh, I'm really honored to, to be here at the Aspen Brain Labs. And I, uh, I welcome the opportunity to share with you what I've learned about the importance for sleep, of sleep for brain health and the impact, uh, the influence of the brain on uh, aging. So <clears throat> what I'd like to do is, is to begin by just pointing out how sleep-deprived we are as a society. Only one out of three Americans report that they regularly get a sufficient amount of sleep. 50 million uh, Americans a month struggle to stay awake while they're on the nation's highways, resulting in more than a million crashes every year, 50,000 debilitating injuries, and uh, nearly 7,000 deaths every year. It's one, one out of five car crashes in serious car uh, crash injuries. <clears throat> so it's, a, it's an amazing problem. I, I, I think of that as a barometer of how sleep-deprived we are as a society. And it doesn't just impact safety in that way, but it also impacts our brain's emotional health. You know, when we're sleep-deprived, we, we get burned out, we are more likely to suffer from depression, increased risk of suicide, anxiety disorders, and just an emotional liability that happens when we have not gotten enough sleep. The amygdala, which is the area of the brain that was just talked about uh, with respect uh, <clears throat> to the previous presentation, is the emotional center of the brain. And when we haven't gotten enough sleep, the same stimulus, the same disturbing images or whatever is done, even, even under a, in the brain scanning, the amygdala has 10 times the response when we haven't gotten enough sleep. And that's why we become more emotionally volatile. So why does the brain need sleep anyway? Uh, you know, sleep, <clears throat> when I was starting, was, was thought to be of the brain, for the brain, and by the brain. We now know that it also is important for the body. But one of the things that, that sleep does for the brain is that it restores the energy stores that we have in the brain. The brain uses more energy by weight than any other part of the body. 
It's only two, per, two to three percent of the weight of the body, and yet the brain uses 20 to 30 percent of all the oxygen that we consume and all of the glucose energy that we consume. So it's a tremendously high energy burning organ. Uh, and when we have depleted the energy, which is in the form of adenosine triphosphate, when we burn off those high energy phosphate bonds, we're left with adenosine. And as adenosine levels rise in the brain, that signals us that we need to get to sleep. We feel sleepy. So I see, I see many, many uh, people here have an adenosine antagonist that they may be using to help them, which is one of the most commonly used drugs in the world, and of course it is caffeine. And, and that masks that signal so that we don't realize uh, that we need the sleep. And so, so when, when we don't restore that energy, we feel fatigued, sluggish. That's what results in the burnout that I was talking about before. <clears throat> the other important function of sleep is memory consolidation. So during the beginning of sleep, during deep, slow-wave sleep at the beginning of the night, that's when we consolidate the memories for what we learned during the daytime. And that happens in the beginning of the night. We store away those memories. <clears throat> then, and that happens, by the way, and we rehearse what we've done during the daytime. And those rehearsals in the storage of those memories happen at 15, 20, 25 times real time. So if you've learned a new piece on the piano with your right hand, the area that controls the movement of that hand will have much deeper slow wave sleep in the beginning of the night. Uh, and we'll be rehearsing that over and over again. So you'll be able to do it much more quickly with fewer errors uh, the next day. <clears throat> and if we don't do that high intensity rehearsal, then we don't gain, uh, we don't consolidate those memories uh, after sleep and we become more forgetful. And that can masquerade as cognitive impairment, particularly as we get older. And so we may think that we're sort of losing it because we can't remember things, but that may be because our sleep is in some way disturbed. Then in the latter half of the night, if, if your alarm doesn't go off a couple of hours before you should be waking up, how many people here spontaneously awaken in the morning without an alarm clock? That is fantastic. And I applaud you for being able to do that. Uh, so many people are enslaved to the alarm clock waking them up in the morning. And when that happens, you lose the last couple of hours of sleep which are deeply enriched in rapid eye movement sleep. That's the sleep stage associated with vivid dreaming. In that sleep stage, we integrate the information that we learned and we stored in the beginning of sleep with everything that we already knew before that. <clears throat> and that's when we begin to solve problems. And, and you know, this, you know, the session on sleep could also be in the creative brain because, because if we don't get that rapid eye movement sleep, and by the way, that happens in real time. So if you're watching a ping pong game, you know, your eyes are going back and forth at the rate that it takes the ping pong to go back and forth across the table. Uh, so, but, but if we don't do that integration and have these bizarre dreams, then that impairs our creativity and problem solving. And finally, uh, and this is one of the most recently understood phenomenon in the last uh, five years or so, 
And that is that during sleep, critical brain maintenance activities happen. And we clear waste that is built up during the day. So any high energy utilization system, if you're burning a lot of energy, just like your furnace, it needs to be cleared out because gunk and soot and everything accumulates. Well, in the brain, we accumulate molecules like amyloid beta, which are products of energy consumption. And if the amyloid beta accumulates and is not cleared out, then that's what causes uh, uh, neurodegeneration and, uh, and conditions like cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. And that is at much greater risk in individuals who, don't, who have disturbed sleep or in some, in, for whatever reason are not getting enough sleep. And I'll show you some pictures. So these are newly discovered glymphatic channels in the brain that are sleeves that are where, where, these, where these molecules, these, this debris is removed. And here's a cartoon showing how that happens. These sleeves are around the arteries and the veins and the arterioles and the venules. And there is connective, convective flow. And none of this was realized you know, six years ago. Uh, and if you see here, uh, let's see, can I make a, uh, I don't know if, I can, if there's a pointer, but anyway, you can see those, those the, 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 in this cartoon, you see the black globs. That's the de metabolic debris that's accumulating during wakefulness, during high brain activity associated with wakefulness. Well, that is being cleared by this convective flow of this newly discovered glymphatic system. And the amazing thing is that the support cells of the brain actually shrink during sleep, allowing these channels to become larger, and the convective flow is two to three times greater during sleep, and that's when you remove this gunk that has accumulated during wakefulness. But if you don't get the sleep that you need, then you're gonna be at increased risk for cognitive impairment associated with the accumulation of these metabolic debris. Now, it's not just the brain that needs sleep, but also the body that needs sleep. And so <clears throat> the cardiovascular system needs sleep, and if we don't get the sleep that we need, uh, then we are at increased risk for hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and stroke. Sleep is also critically important in the regulation of appetite. Some, someplace during evolution, sleep and appetite got linked. And you know, maybe it's because no other animals stay awake all night uh, unless they're starving. So the brain goes into starvation mode when we are not sleeping. And uh, what does that mean? That means we squirrel away all the calories that we eat into fat when we're not sleeping, when, when we're not sleeping and we become ravenously hungry, so we overeat. You know, any of you who have stayed up all night flying to you know, overseas, whatever, you become much more hungry, and you're not hungry for like salads. <laughs> you want junk food, you want high, high carbohydrate foods, you want sugary snacks, and so on, uh, because that's what the brain is craving. We release more of the hormone ghrelin that makes us hungry, and less of the hormone leptin that makes us satisfied with what we eat. And it is thought that this, that the, that the uh, sleep deficiency that has been accumulating in the United States over the past 50 to 70 years, we've been getting less and less and less sleep, uh, <clears throat> has associated with overeating and weight gain and may be a contributing factor to the obesity epidemic that we have in the United States, where not in Colorado, but in most of the United States, 
two out of three Americans are either overweight or obese. <clears throat> and interestingly, when you look at the obesity maps, they're, uh, they're, they're parallel with the maps of where people are getting an insufficient amount of sleep by state. Uh, <clears throat> now, not only is it related to appetite, but sleep deficiency is also related to, to our ability to maintain control of our glucose levels. So we normally fast during the night. Uh, at least during evolution, we would have done that. And so we release a hormone, melatonin, that both helps us to sleep at night, but it also impairs the activity of insulin so that we become insulin resistant. And our, our, it helps the brain maintain glucose levels throughout the night. Great. But this system evolved at a time when we didn't have access to food at night. So now we open the refrigerator and we eat when that hormone is being released. Or we take melatonin because we think, oh, this is going to help us sleep. And then just before going to bed, we have a snack or we eat during the night. Now our glucose levels are going to go much higher and can put us in a pre-diabetic state or increase the risk of frank diabetes. So eating at night is a problem. And if you restrict your eating uh, to, to 12 hours a day, and most Americans eat every moment they're awake, uh, but if you restrict your eating to 12 hours a day, you can actually eat the same amount and you will lose weight. It's, it's remarkable. In fact, if you do two things, if you restrict your eating to 12 hours a day and you get a sufficient amount of sleep, you're, you will actually lose fat when you go on a diet. If you, if you don't, if you're, not, if you're getting an insufficient amount of sleep when you go on a diet, 75% of the weight that you lose will be in lean body mass, your muscles, and not fat. Because you'll be, your brain is in starvation mode, so you'll be squirreling away everything you eat into fat, even though you're restricting the amount of food that you're eating. So maintenance of insulin glucose regulation, if, if you're getting an insufficient amount of sleep, it increases the risk of metabolic syndrome and diabetes. And finally, the immune system is affected by sleep deficiency. So, uh, you know, I always wonder why the government doesn't say when it's time for the flu season for everybody to make sure they get a sufficient amount of sleep before they get the flu shot because you only have half the antibody response if you're sleep deprived when you get the flu shot in the week before you get the flu shot as compared to if you're getting a sufficient amount of sleep. And similarly, if during the winter you're exposed to the rhinovirus, if you're not getting enough sleep, you have a two to three hundred percent increased risk of actually catching a cold. And most people know this. I mean, they, they say, you know, I'm run down, I got a cold. Well, it's not that they suddenly, when they weren't run down, they were still being exposed to the rhinovirus, but they don't succumb to the infection. Okay, so in order to thrive, one of the simplest things that we do, can do is to make sure that we get enough sleep. And for the average adult, that means seven to nine hours of sleep per night. Children need more sleep. High school kids need eight to 10 hours of sleep. Uh, <clears throat> toddlers uh, in their first year of life need at least 12 hours of sleep. In fact, in fact, if children get less than 12 hours of sleep in their first year of life, they have a 300% increased risk of being overweight when they start preschool. I mean, it's at every age. Uh, it, you know, 12-year-old uh, girls and boys, if they're not getting enough sleep at that age, when they're 30, they have 
a much greater risk of being overweight. So these are, during development is the most critical time, and that's why it's so unfortunate the high schools are starting school at seven in the morning. It was known a century ago. Uh, here in the United States, it was demonstrated that if you start before nine o'clock in the morning, uh, the schools that the children will get, if you start at seven, they'll get two hours less sleep. And uh, Professor Terman at Stanford uh, in 1911 said we must never go to the European system of starting at seven o'clock in the morning because our kids will miss the sleep that they critically need. And now we're starting at seven and in Europe they're starting at nine. <clears throat> so duration is critically important. The second key aspect is timing, which is just as important, a consistent bedtime and a consistent wake time. And that's why I always say, you know, on your iPhones, there's an opportunity, or, or smartphones, there's an opportunity to actually set an alarm for bedtime. You know, we set an alarm for wake time. We should be setting it for bedtime to remind us to make sure that we get the sleep that we need. And the final aspect is sleep quality. And what do I mean by sleep quality? Uh, well, I'll, I'll show you in a minute, but, but sleep disorders are one of the biggest uh, things that, that degrade the quality of sleep. So summarizing, the number of hours awake contribute to our uh, fatigue during the daytime. If we're getting an insufficient amount of sleep every night, that'll build up a sleep debt, which will great degrade our, uh, our ability to function. If we're trying to stay awake at three o'clock in the morning and our brain is uh, geared to being uh, asleep at that time, like we travel across time zones, that's gonna cause uh, fatigue. Uh, if we have just awoken, I mean, most couples realize, you know, in the first few minutes after awakening, this is not the time to have a, an intense discussion. <laughs> you know, better to have a shower, this, that's good for the relationship. Because people don't even, you know, they're so degraded during those first few minutes of awakening uh, that they may say something inappropriate. Uh, but let's talk about sleep disorders. So sleep disorders, the big four are insomnia, sleep apnea, shift work disorder, and restless leg syndrome. I'm gonna really talk mostly about insomnia and sleep apnea. Let's start with sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is a condition where you can't breathe and sleep at the same time, and that's a problem. <clears throat> so everybody thinks it's associated with snoring, and snoring is one of the, uh, is, is one of the uh, symptoms of sleep apnea. But the real problem is when you stop snoring, okay, and have witnessed apneas. So if you have a bed partner and the bed partner is driving up the wall because of the snoring and so on, and then you think, oh, they've stopped snoring, thank God, make sure they're breathing. <laughs> so I'm gonna show you a video and I'm gonna ask you uh, you know, Glenda said, you know, we can't have too many videos. Well, this is a video where we're actually watching someone snoring during sleep. And I want you to stop breathing when he stops breathing. Can you turn up the volume so we can hear the snoring, please? Nice, good snore. Another good snore. Great, everything's going well. Everything's fine. Get ready to stop breathing. Oh, stop breathing. Hold your breath now. I want everybody to hold your breath. See if you can hold your breath as long as he can, even though we, we haven't done cold therapy. I know that. 
He's still not breathing. He's still not breathing. All right, you can breathe. Don't get too relaxed, though. He's going to stop breathing again. Now, when he stops breathing, okay, stop breathing, everybody. When he stops breathing, you can recognize how your heart is beginning to raise, how your blood pressure is rising. So during sleep, the cardiovascular system is supposed to be getting the rest that it needs. With sleep apnea, these recurrent, and this happens two to 300 times per night. All right, you can breathe again. Two to 300 times per night. So you can understand why it increases the risk of cardiovascular death by 420%. So, so let's look at, um, at some historical data of individuals. They were 48 when they started the study. At the time, it was thought if you didn't complain of daytime sleepiness, you shouldn't be treated. So the epidemiologists just followed them and said, what happens? Okay, so 100% of them are alive at the beginning. Now, there's a little fall off at, at, at the beginning, but they're still doing okay. But look at that. After 10 to 15 years, the survival among those with sleep apnea is 58% as compared to 94% of the people who, would have been six, who were 66 at the time that this happened. So 18 years later. <clears throat> and those who, of the 58% who are still alive, they had cognitive impairment 10 years earlier and Alzheimer's disease five years earlier. So we're talking about a very serious, you know, everybody laughs when somebody snores. It's not a joke. It's a very serious health condition that directly affects the brain. And so, and it happens most commonly in people who are overweight uh, and people who are snorers. Uh, children who snore, even once an hour, you know, grade school children, they need to have their tonsils out usually because uh, it can really impair their ability to learn in school. Uh, and, and give them a lifelong problem. So, uh, the, and, and the good news is that sleep apnea is treatable, either with the CPAP machine, oral appliances, like uh, just a, like a retainer that you put in when you, a dental uh, retainer that moves forward your lower jaw by about two to three millimeters, uh, and even certain types of surgeries. Chronic insomnia, also not as dramatically, but increases the risk of premature death instead of increasing it by six times like sleep apnea does, it doubles uh, the risk of death. Um, and again, the great news is that cognitive behavioral therapy is a terrific treatment for insomnia. It's available online for, through programs like Sleepio and ShutEye, uh, and therapists are, are able to administer it. Relaxation techniques like meditation, yoga, deep breathing, um, <clears throat> proper sleep hygiene, a consistent bedtime, wake time, and medications can be used on a short-term basis. The wonderful news is that even, even individuals in incredibly sleep-challenged environments, like firefighters, we can increase dramatically their sleep duration, sleep quality, and improve their daytime alertness. We can reduce their risk of injury by 25%, and in, reduce in, cut in half their disability day usage uh, with this kind of a program. In fact, we just won the National Safety Council uh, Green Cross for Safety Innovation Award this year through this program. So what can you do? Uh, you know, for the astronauts, we just relamped the, uh, the International Space Station to provide 
tunable lighting uh, where, where we can expose them to shorter wavelength uh, light in the morning and longer wavelength light in the evening. You can keep a consistent sleep schedule, allow enough time in bed to sleep a sufficient amount each night, maintain a cool, dark, quiet environment for sleep, establish a relaxing nightly routine, exercise regularly during the daytime. It takes two hours to metabolize each, each shot or glass of wine. So I'm not suggesting that everyone become a day drinker, but <laughs> you should account for that because alcohol interferes with sleep. Uh, keep electronics, as Glenda said, out of the bedroom uh, and limit your exposure to blue enriched light in the evening. Uh, I would avoid off-label uh, use of medications like Benadryl and Tylenol PM. Melatonin can be helpful, but you need to get pharmaceutical grade melatonin. Uh, Pure Encapsulations and Rem Fresh are two brands that are pharmaceutical grade, and you ideally want to take sub-milligram doses. Uh, keep the sleep stealers out of your environment, like the iPhone, the cigarettes. Uh, coffee has a six to nine hour, caffeine has a six to nine hour half-life. Uh, dogs, I love dogs, we have two dogs. Uh, they don't belong in the bedroom. <laughs> and, uh, and with that, I will end, this can, this can, it can really transform your life. You, you will have more energy during the daytime. Uh, you will be, your, your memory will be better. You will be, uh, uh, you know, you'll even look better. There's a study showing that, um, that people who have lost a night of sleep and taken portrait images, all shaved, cleaned up, and versus people who are, uh, have slept the night before, people can recognize when they're shown these images within four seconds and they want to spend time, these are the same people, they want to spend time with the ones who've slept, they don't want to get near the ones who are sleep deprived. So it does affect how you look as well. So thank you very much. What I'm gonna speak about today is an intersection of science and Eastern contemplative traditions. Uh, and the subject, as Catherine Ann described, was the idea of what's called yoga nidra. So in short, I'm going to start to go into that in a little bit greater depth, but I want to introduce a couple ideas first. But in short, what yoga nidra means is uh, yoga, we could translate as awareness or experience or union. And sleep translates, or excuse me, nidra translates as sleep. So yoga nidra is a practice that's really uh, more than we see it in various texts uh, that are more than a thousand years old. So it's been around for quite some time, and we're at a kind of interesting juncture now as it relates to the needs to our culture and our society and how technology has impacted so many of us that I really think we stand at a turning point in Yoga Nidra becoming a significant contributor to keeping us sane and healthy. And so um, I want to just, before I start to go into the subject directly, I actually would like to ask you one or two things. First of all, how many of you feel absolutely rested? Absolutely rested. Okay. So I would, I would guess from where I'm standing, that's less than 5%, which is probably accurate. Now I'm going to ask you, that was the easy one. Now I'm going to ask you a harder one. And that is, what's the purpose of life? I'll give you a little time, as much as you need. What is the purpose of life? And 
I'm going to speak to that. Uh, really, that's what this whole conversation is, and hopefully what I can contribute to this, to this um, gathering. Uh, in short, what I would tell you is that the purpose of life is twofold. Number one, to learn how not to suffer, to have less suffering. And number two would be to contribute to the world what it is that you are precisely gifted to contribute, to find your purpose. And we saw it on this first really extraordinary film you shared with us, Glenda. And that's what the gentleman said. He said, as long as, I, as you are alive, you have a purpose. So I would say that um, that is the purpose of life, is number one, to figure out how to suffer less, and number two, how to find your unique purpose. Uh, indeed, part two of that is the subject of my book, The Four Desires. But it's the first one I want to speak a little bit about today, and, um, and in how this conjunctions, how, what's the conjunction of that idea and Yoga Nidra. Really, if we think about it, we think that all of the developments we've seen in civilization, from the kind of capturing of harnessing of fire, what we did to electricity, and to the neurology that we celebrate so much of here in Aspen Brain Lab, to engineering, to architecture, to all of it, in a way, is to help us suffer less. All of these advents of technology, indeed, are to serve a purpose, which is to help us, in a way, move toward having more fulfillment. Now, in the Eastern tradition, of this idea. There's really two fundamental approaches to this and two kind of focuses. One focus of having more or less suffering, let's say more pleasure or less suffering, more fulfillment, less suffering, would be to master the outside world. And so that is what civilization has done so brilliantly. And in many ways, the West has spearheaded. We're kind of the tip of the spear in this, and that is this incredible uh, uh, um, build up and how we continue to kind of ex, uh, st uh, snowball this whole development of technology is really quite extraordinary. And so the principle of that is, is that on a worldly level, we continue to get more fulfilled. We have more at our disposable, disposal, we have more freedom, we have more, as it were, things, choices. The Eastern tradition, however, says, but there's an entirely different way to accumulate knowledge and develop knowledge over time, and it doesn't lead to circumstantial happiness. It leads to lasting fulfillment. It leads to not circumstantial happiness, but lasting fulfillment. And how do we gain knowledge that allows us to be less at the mercy of circumstances to determine our happiness? This is actually the introduction to the concept and to the discussion of Yoga Nidra. In a way, it's, it's, it's really compelling to us to say, how, what do I have to know in order to touch upon lasting fulfillment? Now, something that modern science and these ancient seers have in common is the understanding that your senses are relatively weak when it comes to perceiving reality. Your senses, your five senses, what they see, what we hear, taste, touch, and smell, is about, well, the most optimistic studies I've seen about this is that you and I perceive about 8% of reality. So there's 92% of reality that's kind of just not being recognized. The less optimistic studies say that we see about one 0.001% of reality. So right now, in the context of just this moment, 
you and I are seeing somewhere between one one-hundredth of one percent or possibly eight percent of really what's occurring at this moment. That's kind of bad news if you're looking to fulfill the purpose of your life, which is to have more pleasure, because you're seeing very little. And this is the bad news. The good news is you sleep. Even if you don't sleep a lot, you sleep. And the ancient tradition held the idea of this, is that when you slept, you stepped into another world. Not a world of confusion or darkness, but actually a, a world in which discovery was a possibility, boundless discovery. So the setup for that is the idea that even when we are, well, when we're awake, we're at the mercy of our five senses plus our rational mind. In other words, we make up decisions and thoughts around the world based on those five senses and what they tell us. Right? So we get 5% of the evidence. I'm now averaging things out here. Maybe 4 maybe 2% of the evidence, and we make decisions about who we are, what's important, where we're going, the future of our life, what we need to fight for, what we don't need to fight for, what we need to react to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, based on 2% and then our limited learning. On the other hand, they said, and now what happens in dreams is just a kind of processing of those various experiences and projections, and so we're still within the confines of our five senses, aren't we? But what the seers recognized was that when you sleep, it all disappears. The doctor earlier spoke so you know, eloquently and so comprehensively about the value of sleep, and he spoke about it in a physiological context. But now I'm going to speak about a little bit in terms of a psychological, emotional, and even spiritual context. That sleep provides us a window into boundlessness. The problem is that when we're sleeping, we're not seeing that we're resting in boundlessness. This is, in fact, what many sciences have now tried to do, is develop instruments for seeing what we don't normally see. So when we think about the proton, the particle accelerator in Switzerland, or we even saw the few cartoons uh, about how the brain is processing and digesting toxins when you sleep, we're developing instruments that see beyond what our five senses can see. But still, we're at the mercy of comprehending what we're seeing based on what we're seeing through our five senses. So even that cartoon I had to perceive through my five senses. So now what I want to offer is that the yogis literally developed a way to have it the best of both worlds, which is to remain conscious while sleeping. And that's what they called yoga nidra. Yoga Nidra basically is a way of fundamentally relaxing very deeply. Now, here's the news, and if I want to, I don't have a lot of time to speak about this very rich subject today. But so what I would tell you is that Yoga Nidra itself is the intersection of the deepest state of meditation combined with deep sleep. Physiologically, what it ultimately means is that you are in the non-REM, excuse me, non-REM, deep wave, slow wave sleep. You're in that stage the doctor was telling us about where physiologically there's tremendous repair going on. There's all of this kind of pruning of memory and all of the vital reserves that are occurring. Well, that's what we're going to enter through Yoga Nidra. I don't think, I didn't hear you speak to the idea that, you know, one thing that should be said, although dream, you know, uh, the process of nature and adaptation has allowed sleep to be what it is, but the fact is it's relatively ineffective 
when it comes to deep sleep. And by that, again, I mean slow wave, uh, the third stage of deep sleep. The deepest sleep actually only occurs about 20%, 20 to 25% over eight hours. We heard how eight hours is ideal, but only about 20% of it is in this deep sleep. Well, the yogis found ways to, to deeply relax that would generate that same slow wave deep sleep within 10 to 15 minutes. So that means that within, 40, let's say, 30 minutes to 40 minutes of this process, you gain something like 20% uh, of what you need in terms of deep sleep over, over an, a night. In other words, if you do a session of yoga nidra in about 40 minutes, you get about an eighth or a sixth of what you need. Now, I don't know if this is true, and I went up to try and ask um, doctor at the break about this, but in not so long ago, I read in the New York Times, talked about phases of sleep. And using, instead of necessarily having to get eight to nine hours every night, that if we got six to seven and then took a nap, it would have the same beneficial effect as if we spoke, if we slept nine. And we can, is, you're shaking your head in the affirmative. Is that correct? So this is where yoga nidra really comes in, in a very pragmatic sense, incredibly usefully. Because in that lull that most of us experience around two to three, that's not just because your coffee is worn out. The fact is that there is a physiological phase where you need to sleep more. You need another little sleep. And there's a startling statistic around when the Spanish gave up siestas. Within eight years, they did studies on this, and the incidence of heart attacks went up 66% in men. Men actually more susceptible to heart attacks. In other words, when they weren't sleeping and taking their naps in the afternoon, I'm giving you permission to take a nap. <laughs> but more importantly, I, I will invite you to do yoga nidra during that time because of how quickly it allows us to enter this place of deep sleep. And now within yoga nidra, interestingly, there are actually processes that are somewhat similar to dreaming, that you actually allow yourself to consciously dream. So um, there's, how much time do I have, actually? I didn't look what time it was when I came up. Can someone tell me? You seven minutes. Seven minutes. <laughs> it's a lifetime. So let me tell you, there has not been a lot of research, but this is very much a science-based discussion. My grand teacher was one of the first and only masters of this science to uh, be tested in a laboratory. And this was um, early days of um, EGs and EKGs. And in the late 70s, he did these tests at the Manager Institute in Kansas. And um, he defied, at the time, scientists' understanding of what was possible. So by all measures, he was sleeping. He would do this practice, and he would tell them, listen, uh, while I'm in this state of sleep, I will be fully conscious of what's happening in the environment. I said, no, you won't be. Because that is, that is one of the key symptoms, if you will, of sleeping, is that there may be noises going on and sirens going on and if you live in a city or your kids are making noise or the dogs are barking next door. And if you're sleeping deeply, you're unaware of it. So he said, I'll be aware of that. So by all measures, they gave him a chance to do this practice, which is, again, doesn't take very long to enter. And it's really simple. That's the real beauty of it. And I want to emphasize that point before I finish. And he dropped into this state. And they say, by all measures, predominant delta wave pattern, he's asleep. Well. As prearranged, the scientist had a conversation in the room while he was sleeping. After coming out of the state, he 
He told them verbatim what they had said. He had heard everything, and yet, by all measures, he was asleep. And he said, but that, that's only part of it. Let's do something else. I'll do the practice again, but this time be in a different room. He said, a different room. You won't be able to hear us. He said it didn't matter. So they did the process. They went into, I guess, again, you can read about this. It's all been documented. They went into a room, other sound, soundproofing in between him and them. They had this, uh, another conversation. He was in the state of sleep, and he told them what they said, verbatim. So what this means is that our five senses are limited. It's, un, it's, it's kind of un, unacceptable or very hard to fathom that someone could not only be asleep and hear people, but he could hear people in, in a place where their sen- his senses couldn't normally perceive it anyway. And what it suggests is that you and I see very little of reality. And that as we begin to disengage with our senses, we begin to activate awareness, intelligence, or consciousness, excuse me. And this is when, this is where, in a sense, science is really just making the most interesting discoveries around, and this is still the big question in science, I believe, is what is consciousness? What is the physiology of consciousness? What is it, and how does it differ from brain? We would argue that brain is the instrument of consciousness. That's from the Eastern contemplative traditions. So, in short, I just want to again uh, wrap, just wrap things up. Here's our one I want to, I'd like to just say in closing around this idea, and that is that it is through the quietude in the mind that it makes it possible for us to perceive what normally we don't perceive. Again, from the tradition of the East, it suggests that our inherent nature is creativity. Our inherent nature is capacity. Our inherent nature is intuition. And now science has actually shown us that when we become stressful, the brain goes into a default mode called exploitation, which means that we keep looping the information that we have operated from in the past. When we become stressed, our brain circulates what we already know and reuses it and reapplies it again and again and again. When we become relaxed, when we begin to stimulate or activate delta patterns and do it consciously, not just through sleep, sleep is deeply meaningful, but when we begin to do it either through meditation or through yoga nidra, what I'm making the case for today, what I like to call enlightened sleep, the brain shifts into its normative pattern, which is exploration. And Glenda, we celebrate the idea of creative brain here. What I would say is the brain by default is creative. Your brain by default solves problems. That's its nature. And it does so in ever new and creative ways. But it can only do so when you relax. That is, uh, that's, that's the science of this. So having said that, what I would suggest, and I, I was having some conversations uh, last night uh, in preparation for uh, today with some of the members of the board and some of their friends and supporters. And I don't know if I had one conversation was with anyone who said, how do, I, how do I sleep more? How can you help, you know, what does this say? With regular practice, this thing called enlightened sleep, allows us to trigger enough of the, of the parasympathetic response, which we've also heard about today, so that in time, 
you begin to change the direction. You begin to create a kind of operative balance in your nervous system, autonomic nervous system, that allows you to rest and sleep more deeply. Also, enlightened sleep or yoga nidra can be used as a way to prepare for sleep. And let me make that last suggestion, uh, make that last point as I leave you. Sleep, to sleep deeply, is not just a physiological phenomenon. It's also a, a psychological or mental phenomenon. And by that I mean we've all experienced moments in our life where we've been physically tired but mentally activated. Other times we're mentally exhausted but physically stimulated. And both speak to the idea that it's, it's difficult to fall asleep. Whether we're physically tired and mentally active or mentally tired and physica physically active. So somehow we need the cooperation or the integration of the mind and the body to sleep deeply. I was taught that in order to sleep deeply, you have to prepare for sleep. And something that we can all do, I have some people coming tomorrow, but something that we can all do is as you get into bed, take five to 10 minutes, never mind, the, we put the phones away now, but simply slow down your breath consciously. And within five minutes, you will feel a dramatic shift. That's where you begin to set the, really the stage in, uh, to be able to sleep deeply. And then finally, we can also use sleep when we learn how to be, bring awareness with it uh, to discover there is more to us than we see in the mirror. I want to again thank you, Glenda, and thank you to the Aspen Brain Institute Lab. Thank you very much. <laughs>